0: and suggest future topics and guests. Esco Kate is an American attorney licensed to practice in Washington, Oregon, and Vietnam. A native of Seattle, Esco utilizes his ability to communicate in both English and Vietnamese. To assist companies and individuals with a variety of legal issues ranging from foreign direct investment projects to cross-border commercial transactions. ESCO is currently working for the Ho Chi Minh City Office of Vietnam International Law Firm, or VILAF, which is a full-service business law firm that has been operating in Vietnam for over 20 years. ESCO, welcome to Harris-Bricken's Global Law and Business.
2: Thank you, and thank you for
0: having me.
1: Esco, on this podcast, we consider any international experience to be interesting, but there must be something special about being in Vietnam of all places at this moment in time. Uh, Both Fred and I spent time in China before things began to sour. So we're familiar with the kind of energy that Vietnam is transmitting at the moment. So can you tell us what it's like to be in a place that's constantly coming up in conversations around the world? Uh, It's
2: very, very exciting to be here right now. This is a place with a lot of energy, It's rapid growth, as you know. I think something that's really interesting here is that a lot of the changes that we're seeing are very positive, both economically and socially. So economically, I think that that's the side that gets more press. Uh, Economically, there's new business. There's a lot of investment going on here. And so to go along with that, what you're seeing is uh, on the ground here is... New businesses popping up all the time. You see a lot of startups, a very strong startup community, Um, and also just uh, established businesses from abroad moving here. All of that is uh, kind of increasing the standard of living for the citizens here, which I think kind of helps push the second thing that we're seeing a lot of progress here with, which is social development. I came here the first time in 2014. And even since then, it's just a shocking amount of difference. You can see uh, there's so much more education about health and especially uh, food safety. That's something that's really, uh, really, really developed. Another thing that I've seen here that's really exciting uh, to be part of is education and environmental awareness. They're starting to see a lot of businesses here doing you know small things, right? They're, they've stopped using plastic straws. They're starting to use paper straws and That's that's really exciting. Another thing that's happening a lot here is uh, as far as social development is going is promotion of outdoor activities and athletics. So we're starting to see a lot more bicycle clubs, uh, running clubs, things like that, which is all of that put together makes it a really, really exciting place to live and a really exciting place to work.
1: I like to call that the fat curve, right? <laughs> so you're, you're, you're pushing down. Vietnam is now, now pushing down the fat curve instead of up the fat curve, right? Hey, yeah,
2: I think so. You know It's kind of interesting because I think that uh, all these changes, they've been implemented pretty smoothly. You, like we talked about it developing rapidly, and I think sometimes that can have a kind of jarring effect on the population. But I think that in particular, Vietnamese people culturally, they're very adaptable. Uh, and so as things change, they are pretty open to the new ideas and they're willing to adopt something new and try something new, which has been really, really helpful in getting the, like, in just adopting all of these changes smoothly without any hiccups or without having a lot of
0: pushback. That's very interesting, Esco. Let me ask you, what is it like to work in Vietnam as a foreign attorney? Uh, Perhaps you can tell us about some of the matters on which you're working to get a flavor uh, of what you're what you're doing these days. Sure.
2: Uh, Working as an attorney here is also uh, pretty interesting. It's made my life really uh, quite interesting since I started working here. Uh, I guess as an initial matter, you need to know the legal market here in Vietnam isn't that big yet. It's like in the U.S., it's a pretty sizable industry. And so that's coming from that to Vietnam, where it just is not, there's not that many attorneys, not that many foreign attorneys in particular operating here. Uh, That was kind of interesting. I I think a lot of that is because Vietnam is not a very litigious society. So that's an entire segment of the legal industry in the U.S. That just is not really, uh, not really applicable here. You do see some litigation, of course, but nothing to the scale is what we'd find in the u s. Um, the other thing that I found very interesting, particularly about working as an attorney here and the legal industry here, is that the attorneys the foreign attorneys that are working here are from all over the world so there's there's a few American attorneys I know that are working here, but I also know a lot of French attorneys. Um, and, uh, some Canadian attorneys, some Australian attorneys, uh, and that's, that's been pretty interesting because, you know, the community is, I think very similar to what you'd see in the bar in Washington state or something like that, where there's events, but when you go to these events, you're talking with people that have an incredibly different legal background and just, uh, an incredibly different perspective on the way things are, which I found to be pretty interesting. Let's see, as far as like firm life goes here, that's another thing that I found is uh, quite different than in the US. At least for VLOF, it's far more collegial than any firm I've ever worked for before. It's it's really interesting. I I don't know if this is uh, entirely about Vietnamese culture or if this is actually just the firm itself. It's hard to say. But there's a really big focus on team building and extracurricular activities for the attorneys outside of the firm. For example, um, our firm has a running club, although I guess it really should be called more of a triathlon club because uh every week uh we members of the of a club, it's not compulsory, but there's I think like 30 or 40 members, and we have targets for distances for running or bicycling or swimming which I've just never seen that really at any firms in the U.S. And it's really promoted. Like it's something that managing partners are members and they're they're, they're very active in this, which I thought was really interesting. I think that it's just generally working here as a foreign attorney is pretty significantly different. Moving to your question about what kind of matters I'm working on, primarily what I'm doing here is working on foreign direct investment. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's a lot, a lot of foreign investment coming into Vietnam at this time. And so that's a lot of what we're doing. It's pretty interesting. It's a, like very interesting work. Like I said about the attorneys here, the clients are also from all over the world. We're working with foreign entities from Scandinavia or from the UK or from uh, Korea uh, and uh it's all kinds of industries that are coming in, either setting up shop here or we're structuring commercial loans or, or something like that, maybe acquisitions. And so that I have found to be extremely interesting, a lot less than there used to be. Prior to working as an attorney here, I heard that Vietnam was very closed pretty regularly when I was, uh, before I actually was actually working here, but... I've come to realize that a lot of the sectors are more open now than before. Now there will be restrictions, for example, in certain energy projects. That's going to have to be a public-private partnership, or there's going to be foreign direct, uh, like foreign ownership limits on certain in certain industries. Uh, an example is Vietnam is very protective of its fishing industry. So uh, if you want to come here and set up shop doing working in fisheries you're maybe going to have a little bit more of a challenge than if you wanted to come and do manufacturing or something like that. But I'd say by and large,
1: uh,
2: it's significantly more open than I originally thought.
1: So I'm curious on the collegiality aspect. It sounds like a a great place to work. Would you say, and this kind of fits in with your explanation of, of the Vietnam society being less litigious than the U.S., would you say that uh, this is because the Vietnamese tend to trust each other more uh, and do you think that's because uh, It's it's been uh, more insular than the US or do you think it's uh, something else? I'm I'm just trying to figure out Why it's different. I, I love what makes people tick right? So um, I understand I understand a lot about the Chinese because I've spent A lot of years among the Chinese but the Vietnamese uh, haven't spent much time among them So I'm very curious uh, what your thoughts are there. That's an interesting question. To
2: answer directly, I think that it has a lot to do with their concept of like the family unit being really strong. I actually I think this is similar with Chinese culture as well, although I haven't spent much time with uh, Chinese, so we're kind of on the opposite uh, opposite sides of the coin here. But I think that because the uh, concept of family is really strong, they kind of carry that into work. Plus, it's also just especially for Velov. It's a really big deal. We're working the same hours as when I was working in American firms. And so I think that is a big contributing factor. One more thing that I just thought of is that the attorneys that I'm working with here, I think are probably on average 10 to 15 years younger than a lot of the attorneys I was working with in firms in the U.S. That is in part because the society here in general, is just younger. It has a a much heavier, younger population than I think uh, the U.S. Plus, as I said, the industry here is like the legal industry isn't that big. It's still kind of new. So we have a lot of young attorneys, which I think helps uh, with the aspects of just being able to participate in activities like that, having the time to spend on extracurriculars, et cetera.
1: So what's a typical work day like for you in terms of time in the office, time out of the office compared to what you were doing in the U S. Oh,
2: um, so I normally would say I roll into the office probably around eight to eight thirty, somewhere in there. And I go home seven thirty to nine, somewhere in there. Compared to the U S it's, it's pretty similar. I'd say pretty similar. I think that uh, generally in the U.S., we come in a a little bit later and maybe even leave a little bit later, but uh, I'd I'd say very similar.
1: Interesting. So let's turn now to uh, kind of a macro topic of the U.S.-Vietnam relationship. It's extremely critical now, uh, not just because of the common apprehensions about China, um, but it's fascinating for us who are kind of taking this aspect, looking at not that much time has passed since the Vietnam War. Uh, do you see potential for strengthening of the U.S.-Vietnam relationship? And uh, what do people generally think about uh, Americans or about foreigners in general?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. and A pretty fascinating geopolitical equation, uh, the U.S.-China-Vietnam relationship uh, both, both just their bilateral relationships with either of those countries and also the way it works together when you're looking at all three parties involved. Um, so I guess I, I need to check the most recent numbers to see exactly, but uh, I know US and China are Vietnam's biggest trade partners by far. Uh, each one of them, I, over the past three years, they've gone back and forth as far as I know about uh, who is number one and number two. I think this year it's actually U.S. is Vietnam's number one trade partner, or at least for 2020. But to go along with that, you also do have um, significant tensions and frictions, you know, over over uh, China's activities in the South China Sea, or as the Vietnamese call it, a uh, Vietnam or the East Sea. Uh, they don't call it the South China Sea. Uh, and but you know, and then also even with the U.S., uh, there's a pretty significant trade deficit that's come up in a lot of conversations recently. And then also in December, the U.S. labeled Vietnam a currency manipulator. It's a very, very interesting relationship. And so then when you add the sovereign relationship between China and the U.S. to that, kind of makes it really, uh, I think, very difficult to say what's going to happen as far as strengthening or like relationship strengthening or not strengthening uh, that's going to be really difficult to, I think, pretty difficult to predict. I, all the time, I see articles and I hear rumors about how trade ties are going to be derailed because of a deficit. But then on, at the same time, you see the articles popping up. that's like, oh, US-Vietnam relationships have never been stronger and they're just going to keep increasing. And we're going to see more and more and more partnership ties. Uh, I think over the last year and two, especially over the last year, there's been a lot of businesses uh, that were previously manufacturing in China that decided to either diversify and set up an operation in Vietnam or just entirely move to Vietnam. So that's uh, another thing that's interesting because these are American businesses by and large that are doing this. As far as whether it will strengthen or not, I'm an American working here, so I I would really love to see stronger ties. I think making that prediction is, I wouldn't say anyone's guess. There's going to be some people that have a better handle on exactly what's going to happen, but I think that it's very difficult to predict. Talking about Vietnamese and uh, U.S. relationships or Vietnamese perspective on foreigners, I have to say that all the time I've been here, I've never once felt any animosity from any Vietnamese citizen related to my nationality, not once coming here the first time I was almost anticipating it, I was ready for to maybe have to deal with something like that, but it just never happened. Uh, I found them all all Vietnamese people that I've met to be very friendly and I think quite curious about the world which which I think has really helped them with uh, foreign relationships in general and also just helped them a lot with. I guess, increasing, increasing their industries that are tied to foreign countries.
1: It's interesting. I was listening to an audio book just the other night about China-Vietnam relationships. And uh, the author said, China and Vietnam have been fighting each other a lot longer than, uh, than World War II, right? We think uh, because, because the U.S. Uh, was part of the invasion in Vietnam that that was a, a big deal. But you have, to, you have to take into account hundreds and thousands of years of history yeah, to really get the context for uh, for that, that cultural—I don't know if I'd call it cultural animosity—but certainly the long long history that I think uh, I don't know in the West uh, we don't tend to think in terms of of centuries and millennia when we're talking about history, right? But in Asia, it's much more common to think in those terms.
2: I agree. I agree. The history between China and Vietnam is very very long, and I think that there's quite a lot of heritage that's also interwoven. Especially uh, with southern Chinese regions, there's quite a lot of, I think, just historical background that overlaps and is interwoven. And I think that that probably, as I'm not Vietnamese, I can't speak for how it alters the mindset, but I can't, I, I imagine that it has to have an effect.
0: We cannot have a podcast about Vietnam without bringing up COVID. And in particular, what appears to be a pretty good management of the situation by the authorities in vietnam uh what is your perspective from the ground yeah this is this is a really interesting question as we here in vietnam we've been
2: kind of speculating on why it played out the way that it did first things first the response uh, by the government and also the private sector to COVID has been incredible from the very beginning it was Really quick, it was it was identified as a potential problem really, really early, uh, and measures were put into place immediately. Uh, I think that what you hear about abroad mostly is the response from the government, which, as you said, was very regulated immediately. It was, hey, okay, we're going to lock down all karaoke clubs, we're going to lock down bars immediately. That that happened within weeks. I think uh, the first week of first week of March last year. And then after that, it was like pretty quickly, it was like, okay, uh, we're only going to allow restaurants to have takeout. And this was followed, right? This, this lockdown was really followed. Um, but that only lasted two weeks, I want to say, like maybe three weeks. And after that, everything opened back up. I think that a lot of the reason why that was possible was because the private sector also got into it. As soon as the government has these measures implemented, you see every place of business implementing requirements that you need to be wearing a mask. Otherwise you're not coming in. Um, they have the, almost everywhere here has security guards at the door, just it's standard. They're not, I, I would say that there's almost no violent crime, So they're not trying to, they're, they're really just often taking the position as, of doorman or something like that. But um every single one of these guys had a thermometer that they're checking the temperature of every single person coming into the buildings. Like in my office building, when we walk in, uh, we still have this, there's thermal cameras and they're just sitting and checking every single person that walks in. So that was something that I think was extremely helpful. It wasn't just the government. It was actually private businesses stepping up and saying, okay, hey, we're going to do our part to try and, make sure that this doesn't go anywhere. The other thing is that I think was really, really helpful for Vietnam, especially at the beginning and probably still is, is wearing masks has been the default here long before COVID. Unfortunately, I think uh, partially because of pollution, but it's been what people have been doing long before they were required by government to do so. And so what you can see from that is it was quick and easy to implement. It wasn't necessarily so commonplace indoors before, but everybody already had them. Everybody already had masks. They were like, okay, you know, we wear these outdoors, we can wear these indoors. The other thing that I think is probably pretty interesting and curious about the effect of this is that uh, Vietnam's in, in the major cities, uh, and actually even in the smaller cities, the primary mode of transportation is open-air motorbikes. So, instead of uh, having... majority of your population transported on subways or or trains, Uh, you have everybody driving around open air on their own motorbikes, which I think, uh, I mean, if you've seen the videos of driving here, doesn't necessarily make for any more social distancing than if everyone's on a train. But uh, you can see that uh, I think that this was probably pretty helpful at the outset of controlling it. Uh, since the initial outbreak of COVID, there have been a few resurgences, I think three. We've had a few spikes and those areas are in lockdown. It's immediate. And when something like this happens, the population knows really quickly uh, because the concept of medical privacy is not nearly as strong here as it is in the US. So when there's a new COVID case, it's published by the, published in like all media outlets, who this is, where they're from, <laughs> what... And so uh, that has, I think, enabled contact tracing to be really easy. Everybody can be like, oh, I went to all of those... Or I was at this restaurant that this guy was at three days before he tested positive. Okay, so then they are able to get a test, which I think that's also been particularly helpful. And again, just... I think that everyone realized, possibly because of how how geographically close Vietnam and China are, that this is serious. This is something that if we don't take care of this now, this could be a really big problem. And so because of that, our lives this last year, while they have been different, haven't really been drastically different. With the exception of probably maybe two months of total lockdown time, everything's been open. Uh, completely open, all bars, all clubs, uh, restaurants. We can go sing karaoke. You're supposed to have social distancing measures. And people have been observing those, like stand a little further apart when we're in line for something. But gatherings, family gatherings, those have been able to continue. And that has made it a pretty great place to be during this, uh, what's ultimately been extremely challenging for the whole world.
1: So assuming that Vietnam continues on its current trajectory... Do you think it's bound to offer more opportunities for foreigners? I mean, I'm listening to you and I'm I'm imagining coming to Vietnam and thinking, well, if there aren't that many lawyers, maybe I can find my way, uh, elbow my way in, into a place, right? So uh, that's question A, is that what kind of opportunities do you think there will be for those who might be considering? I missed the China opportunity. I'm going to try Vietnam. So that that's part A. Part B is tell us what a typical weekend is like. Sounds like uh, you have a pretty good handle on that.
2: So, first of all, uh, addressing your question about opportunities, definitely. I think that uh, more and more the economy here is becoming integrated with the world, which is creating new jobs for people that have experience abroad, uh, not just in the legal industry. There's there's new jobs coming up in all kinds of industries here, which I think will create more opportunities for foreigners who want to work here. Uh, as far as... Uh, like a weekend or life, just life as an expat in general. Here, uh, it's what you make it, really. And I guess as an initial matter, you need to know that Vietnam is still, I, I think, uh, classified as a it's like a lower middle developing developing country. And the reason why is because while there are big metropolis areas where you can. Uh, where the standard of living is quite high. There's also very rural areas here as well. And so if you are living in uh, Ho Chi Minh City or in Hanoi, that's going to be a lot different than if you're living in a smaller city or a township somewhere. So, uh, and, and what your life will be like is going to be a day and night difference. Uh, that said, even between cities like Ho Chi Minh City or uh, Hanoi, you're going to find a big difference. So if you're up in Hanoi, uh, you, generally that's that's where the government is seated and you'll find that the city there is a little bit more of a conservative uh, has a, is a little bit more conservative in general things close earlier and I think that people are a little bit less outgoing it's just their culture to be a little bit less up there, a little bit less outgoing if you're in Ho Chi Minh City it's a lot more crazy, a, little, a lot less quiet, it's a lot, so uh, but you are going to be able to find maybe a little bit more uh, foreign influence here than you would if you were living up in Hanoi. That said, there's communities for almost every kind of expat uh, here, so it doesn't matter if you are Korean or if you're Japanese or if you are from Australia or UK. There are, there's, a, I'd say that there's a pretty good community for every every uh nationality of uh of expat here and uh so inside of that you're going to find restaurants that will serve any kind of food you want from anywhere in the world uh and as i mentioned earlier there's been a lot more of a push recently for uh extracurricular activities so it's especially probably in the last two or three probably last two years you you will really be able to participate in a lot more outdoor activities bicycling you can go mountain biking if you want if you're into riding dirt bikes okay now there's trails for this if you're interested in like theater or symphony opera whatever that that, that all exists now that's all you you can you can have a life where you can participate in these things if you're interested so as I said, like, I mean, obviously for some of these things, they're imported. So the opportunities and the selection isn't going to be as good as staying somewhere else in the world, but it's all here
1: now.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you about is, do, do you see a difference in attitudes between North and South Vietnam? And to, to what extent, or perhaps what I really want to get at is, Do you do you see the impact of the returning exiles or, or the, the families of those, um, folks who, who left South Vietnam, who are now going back to, um, South Vietnam to open businesses and, and, and live there. Do you, do you see that as, as having, uh, a major impact and marking differences with with things up north, which uh, to me has always seemed uh, a little closer to, to China, a little more, a little more communist, if you will. How, how do you, what's your perspective on that? That's actually a really interesting question. uh something I hadn't considered before, but I think it is
2: quite valid. And this is just anecdotal, but just from my experience, a lot of the uh, Vietnamese that I've met that are born in the U.S. to Vietnamese parents. It is, like you said, their parents went to the U.S. as a result of the Vietnam War. And then these guys have now come back and actually, with the exception of two people I know who are American-born Vietnamese, they all own bars and clubs here. So you're absolutely right that it's something that it's it's an it's experience that they couldn't get in the U S and then bring back here Uh, because prior to a few years ago, there were not that many Western style bars. There were of course bars, not that many. There wasn't that many cocktail bars. Craft breweries also is another thing that I'm starting to see a lot, a lot more of here. That only happened in the last five years. So geographically speaking, it would make sense to me. Right. Actually, I think almost all of these guys have family here in the South so when they came back, it makes sense that that's where they're going to uh, go to. I think the other thing, too, is just uh, Ho Chi Minh City has uh, been kind of the hub for economic activity for quite a long time. So if you wanted to set up something like this, the opportunities are better, uh, I would say, down here in the south as opposed to going up to Hanoi.
0: Well, Esco, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have really enjoyed it. Before we bring the the podcast to to an end, I'd like to ask you for any recommendations you might have for our listeners. I think primarily here, uh, travel is is what's
2: the big draw, and it's it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Uh, traveling in Vietnam, tourism in general, is really really incredible. Uh, the country has what two thousand over two thousand miles of coastline, so there's a lot of uh, beaches and a lot of beach cities and small beach towns that you can uh, visit that uh, are that vary quite a lot from being extremely developed, so full-size cities on the beach to being very, very small towns that are just for fishing. So if you're trying to get off the beaten path, you can handle that. Um, the other thing is uh, the country also has mountains, some really beautiful, beautiful mountains. Uh, that's actually something I recently – I hadn't really explored much until this year. Uh, earlier this year, I took a trip with my team from Velof. and we went up to the mountains in the north and I was, I was pretty blown away. It was, uh, everywhere you're looking around and everything just looks like a postcard. It was, it was pretty shocking. So I think that if you have the opportunity right now, I think, uh, all travelers, rest- there's, there's a significant travel restriction. And I don't think you can come into the country at this point, uh, due to COVID restrictions, but once that lifts, I would recommend to everybody go ahead and just take a trip. It's it's totally worth it. You can spend some time moving around. I think the other thing uh, is food. Uh, so if you enjoy if you enjoy food, this is a great place for you. Quite a quite a variety of cuisine, uh, seafood, whatever you want to have, and uh, it's pretty renowned by a lot of food critics. Leigh uh, Anthony Bourdain was a
0: huge fan here, and I understand entirely why. Thank you for that. Jonathan,
1: what about you? My recommendation this week is a Netflix series that uh, came out last fall. It's called The Queen's Gambit. And a friend of mine who I, I often check in with and see what he's been watching because I, I, I trust him. I said, what is this series about? He said, it's about chess. And that was all he said. And and I wasn't smart enough to ask any follow-up questions, right? But I played chess as a kid. And so I thought, all i right, right, I'll, I'll look into it. And uh, it's actually quite a bit of fun. It's a it's a coming of age story uh, about a young uh, girl who turns out to be a chess prodigy, and uh, based on a 1983 novel, the same name. Um, quite a bit of fun, uh, you know. If you're even if you're not a real chess aficionado, uh, it's a lot of fun to see the strategy. Uh, growing up in an orphanage in 1950s, she uh, they this orphanage drugged the kids, right? Gave them uppers and gave them downers, and so she she ended up you know, addicted to drugs. And so it's, it's a lot, there are a lot of interesting twists that you wouldn't expect. If someone tells you, hey, there's a series about chess, you should check it out, right? So quite a, quite a bit of fun. Captures a lot of the Cold War, uh, Cold War feel as well, because the top Russian players at the time, or top players in the world were Russian. And so she eventually ends up um, playing against some of them. So it was just fun, you know, kind of, you get the vibe from the 1950s, uh, in the US uh, as seen through the lens of uh, of chess culture. So I think there are only seven episodes, uh, certainly worth some time if you're interested in chess, or you're interested in uh, the 1950s, or you're interested in uh, the vibe during the Cold War. So I uh, recommend that. Fred, what about you? Thanks, Jonathan. My own recommendations this week is a
0: series. Uh, it's originally uh, a series produced by the BBC, but it's available on Netflix. And I think that's how most people are Coming acquainted with it, called the Serpent. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Brought back many good memories of, of Southeast Asia. Um, there's actually no direct Vietnam content in in the series, although the the story takes takes place against the backdrop of the Vietnam War. There's, so there's a, a connection there. But it's it's a, it's a fantastic series. Uh, excellent acting. Um, really fascinating story. Really. And lots of international connections, which is uh, what we love on this podcast. With that, Esco, I'd like to thank you once again for, for being our guest. Really enjoyed it and look forward to having you again on our podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it. And thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.